Hello, I'm Alex Akavon, and you're listening to May It Please the Court. Our Constitution is so simple, so practical, that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. That is why our constitutional system has proved itself the most superbly enduring political mechanism the modern world has ever seen. It was November 1932, and President Herbert Hoover had lost the entire support of the people. Republicans had coasted through the Roaring Twenties, having controlled the White House for the previous 12 years. But the crash of 29 changed everything. The entire economic mindset of the country shifted radically. In 1928, Hoover had won the presidency with an electoral margin of 444 to 87. But four years later, he would lose by a margin of 472 to 59. The Democrat, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, had campaigned on a set of proposed reforms that he called the New Deal to bring the country out of the Great Depression. These reforms sounded very promising, especially compared to the rock-bottom situation most Americans found themselves in. The clip you heard was from FDR's first inaugural address to the nation on March 9, 1933. He hails the Constitution as the most enduring mechanism the modern world has ever seen, and marvels at its simplicity and its ability to adapt yet maintain its core principles. Now, people today don't really talk about that exact part of his speech, but you'll probably recognize this line that came from the same inaugural address. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But ironically, while FDR was pledging himself to the American people and praising our Constitution's endurance, he would soon prove to be responsible for a constitutional crisis. The Lochner versus New York ruling was still on the books, blocking any regulation of business activity. If the New Deal had any chance of succeeding, the Lochner era would have to end. And so, just a few years before he would proclaim a day that would live in infamy and famously declare war on Japan and Germany, President Roosevelt would wage a war at home. Against the U.S. Supreme Court. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate. They want direct, vigorous action. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes. In the spirit of the gift, I take it. What do they need? 
by the word, packing the Supreme Court. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The stakes were high. In overwhelming fashion, the American people had declared their support for new President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his party. Democrats picked up 12 seats and a decisive majority in the Senate. It was now up to them to save the nation. In the first 100 days of FDR's presidency, he passed various legislation that collectively provided emergency relief to the poor, created 250,000 jobs for conservation work, created farm subsidies to raise crop prices, funded new infrastructure projects, regulated wages in certain industries, and built dams along the Tennessee River. And as if that wasn't a lot of action, Congress also voted to end prohibition and let Americans drink alcohol again, once all the states had ratified their proposed amendment to the Constitution. FDR believed that it was better to try something than to do nothing, so there was a trial-by-fire element to his new reforms. Some of his ideas worked, and many of them didn't, but a lot of the modern world grew out of FDR's New Deal. For example, five months into his presidency, FDR created the FDIC, which continues to insure the money we invest in banks today. Two years into his first term, he passed the original Social Security Act and also enacted the country's first-ever welfare legislation. Generally speaking, it was under FDR that the government's role expanded in our day-to-day lives. It was a pretty drastic shift from the economic mindset of the Roaring Twenties, but FDR had convinced the people that this was the direction we needed to go. But he hadn't convinced everybody. And what he was talking about was government intrusion on a whole new scale, which is why there were still a handful of men in positions of power who hated the New Deal and gradually became a sharper thorn in FDR's side. The Supreme Court during FDR's first term was one of the most pivotal and divided courts in U.S. history. And there are also some fun facts about it, too, like how these were the first justices to sit in the Supreme Court building that still stands today. While Oliver Wendell Holmes and Rufus Peckham had been stuck bouncing around various rooms of the Capitol building, by the mid-1930s, the Supreme Court had its own grand space to decide the most important issues of the day. One journalist from the time referred to the new building as the Taj Mahal. And sitting in these brand new offices were nine men responsible for determining the course of legal history. Two of these men were considered the court's swing voters, so we'll get to them later. Instead, we'll start with the four justices who are generally labeled as conservative. And when I say conservative, I mean as Darwinian as it gets. Like Justice Peckham, who died in 1909, four years after he decided the Lochner case, these men believed in the free market with no government intrusion. So let's just say they were not exactly on board with FDR's hands-on approach to regulating the economy. 
These men were so willing to strike down FDR's policies that the press called them the Four Horsemen of the Supreme Court. Their names were Willis Van Devanter, George Sutherland, Pierce Butler, and James Clark McReynolds. These four were united for one central purpose, to stop the New Deal. They would literally drive to work in one car together to strategize their legal arguments, to save the country from FDR. And the best weapon they had in their arsenal was the Lochner case. The last 30 years had seen the court striking down any regulation that infringed on a liberty to contract, protected by the Due Process Clause. That broad interpretation came in very handy, and it really doesn't get much broader than striking down minimum wage laws as unconstitutional. And by 1932, judicial interference with state laws was starting to become pretty common. So the court didn't always need to use the 14th Amendment. The Commerce Clause, for example, also leaves a lot of room for interpretation, often with the effect of blocking New Deal policies. So although the original Lochner case was about the Due Process Clause, the 30-year Lochner era started to refer to all of the pro-business and anti-regulation cases that the court heard during that time. The Four Horsemen would often come out against FDR, and when it came to the subject of due process, their goal was to keep the liberty to contract doctrine alive. To keep the Lochner era alive. But it was getting harder and harder. The Democrats, who now control the legislative and executive branches, were keen to shake things up. The judiciary became the last check against FDR's policies. But the horsemen's biggest foil were the justices on the other side of the spectrum. The court's three musketeers. Yes, that's actually what the press called them. The three liberals on the court in the 1930s were called the Three Musketeers. And their names you might have already heard, because they're very well respected in the legal world. Justice Harlan Fisk Stone, for example, has a scholarship named after him at Columbia Law School. Justice Benjamin Cardozo has an entire law school named after him in New York. And coming in with a law school named after him in Kentucky and an entire college named after him in Massachusetts is Justice Louis Brandeis. Cardozo was the newest justice. President Hoover had chosen him to replace the retiring 91-year-old Oliver Wendell Holmes. The Musketeers were seen as FDR's allies on the Supreme Court. While they didn't always vote in favor of upholding New Deal policies, they followed Justice Holmes' footsteps and advocated for judicial restraint when it came to overturning state labor laws. And like Justice Holmes, each of them wanted to end the Lochner era. So with four horsemen and three musketeers, that leaves us with the two swing voters, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes and Associate Justice Owen Roberts. Chief Justice Hughes had actually run for President of the United States 20 years earlier and lost to Woodrow Wilson. Herbert Hoover then made him a Chief Justice in 1930. Hughes was, generally speaking, on the Musketeer's side. But what he wanted more than anything else 
was at least the appearance of unity on the court. Everyone knew that they were divided, so he was hoping that they could find some middle ground somewhere. The way it would play out, though, is if the horseman could convince the other swing voter, Hughes would likely join them too, so that the final vote would be 6-3 to three instead of 5-4. to four. So really, the future of the Lochner era, the New Deal, and FDR's legacy were in one man's hands. Justice Owen Roberts who had also recently been nominated by Herbert Hoover. These circumstances are what make Justice Roberts one of the most important justices in American history. By the mid-1930s, Washington had slipped into a new routine. FDR's team would strategize new policies, Congress would debate them and pass a law, FDR would sign the law, The law would go into effect, someone would sue about the constitutionality of the law, and the Supreme Court would strike the law down. It was almost like a merry-go-round. Now, while many people in the modern world support Social Security and other policies that came out of the New Deal, some of FDR's ideas would probably seem a little extreme today. And you have the court of the 1930s to thank for the fact that they never came to fruition. For example, one of FDR's ideas was to have the NRA set prices and determine wages in a bunch of different industries. No, I don't mean the National Rifle Association. I'm talking about the National Recovery Administration that FDR had created to regulate the economy. But whereas only a few years before, government stayed out of everything, FDR went as far as to tell chicken farmers how to sell chickens and how much they could sell chickens for. And the court voted unanimously to strike down the National Recovery Act as violating the Commerce Clause. FDR did not find it very funny. And his frustration was starting to reach a boiling point. Finally, the horsemen took it too far. In 1936, the court heard yet another constitutional case about a New Deal policy. This one wasn't as hands-on as the chicken case. It was about FDR's Agricultural Adjustment Act, the AAA, that had been responsible for the farm subsidies. This time, FDR had the three musketeers on his side. They just needed the two swing voters to join them in upholding the AAA. But Justice Roberts sided with the horsemen, which meant that Chief Justice Hughes sided with the horsemen since the musketeers were on the losing side. And even though the case didn't address the liberty to contract doctrine, it is still considered a key case in the Lochner era, which means that 35 years after Joseph Lochner was arrested, His case was still determining American economic policy. Meanwhile, for FDR, the years of effort, of taking meetings, arguing with politicians, finding the right language to create laws to bring the nation out of the Great Depression, were all starting to take their toll. FDR was starting to feel powerless. All of his work would just go up in smoke because of five unelected old men. 
To make matters worse, no justice left the bench during FDR's entire first term, which is pretty rare and meant that he could not nominate a friendly face to help tip the scales. The court was more than an obstacle now, it was a problem, and a problem that FDR had to solve. But first things first, he had a re-election campaign to run. He'd see how that goes, and then he'd deal with the Supreme Court. Once and for all. You're listening to May It Please the Court. The election of 1936 was more than a landslide. Despite steamrolling over President Hoover, FDR somehow racked up even more electoral votes in a second term. He defeated Republican Alf Landon by a margin of 523 to 8, and got 60% of the popular vote. One journalist of the time joked that if Landon had given one more speech, FDR probably would have won Canada too. Now, if that's not a boost of confidence, I don't know what is. So after his re-inauguration, FDR turned to the Supreme Court issue and announced a pretty drastic plan. Because the thing is, and FDR knew this, it would be very difficult to change the way the Constitution works without having a constitutional amendment approved by Congress, and ratified by three-quarters of the states. So any suggestion like taking away the court's power to strike down laws in the first place, or maybe only allow them to strike down laws if there's a minimum vote of 7 to 2, or anything like that, would take a very long time. It can take years to amend the Constitution. And FDR had a nation to run. A nation that had just told him, in a remarkably clear fashion, that they have his back. But then, FDR found a loophole. See, the Constitution does not provide for how many justices there have to be. It just says that the president shall nominate with the advice and consent of the Senate. So, with congressional approval, he could always add new seats to the Supreme Court, In fact, the reason there are nine justices is because President Ulysses S. Grant had added two more seats in the 1870s, after his side lost the case 4-3. Now, FDR could have also done that, added two more seats, and filled them with justices who'd help the three musketeers out and let them win 6-5 if need be. But FDR had far bigger plans than that. He was mad. To him, these old men had lost their minds. He needed to save the country from the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court from itself, which meant an overhaul. And so, in the first month of his second term, FDR called on Congress to add new seats to the Supreme Court, expanding it from nine justices to 15. He would be appointing not one, Not two, not three, four, or five, 
but six new justices to get the votes he needed to regulate the economy. And he argued that this was necessary because the justices were getting old and refusing to retire. He said that he would have to appoint a new justice for each sitting justice that was over 70 years old, which meant six justices. Here's a clip of FDR addressing the nation during one of his fireside chats in 1937. And listen to his attitude shift from his first inauguration speech only four years earlier. Back then, he talked about what the Constitution had endured. But now, he was talking about saving the Constitution from a court that's gone too far in recognizing rights that should not have been recognized in the first place. The court, in addition to the proper use of its judicial functions, has improperly set itself up as a third house of the Congress, a super legislature, as one of the justices has called it, reading into the Constitution words and implications which are not there and which were never intended to be there. We have therefore reached the point as a nation where we must take action to save the Constitution from the court and the court from itself. Seeing this proposal as the extravagant move it was, people didn't exactly jump for joy at the idea. FDR had a lot of support, but adding six new justices? Even members of his own party had a lot of concerns. And yet, despite the outrage he caused, FDR might actually have been successful with what is now remembered as his court-packing plan. But, shortly after making this proposal, something changed. In the spring of 1937, the Supreme Court heard a new case called West Coast Hotel v. Parrish. It was a case about minimum wage. Now, back in 1923, the court had declared minimum wages unconstitutional because of the Due Process Clause. And this new case presented pretty much the exact same question. Unsurprisingly, the four horsemen said, we've decided this. Minimum wage is unconstitutional because of Lochner and because of the liberty to contract. The Musketeers, meanwhile, said that Lochner was wrongly decided and minimum wage should be constitutional. And only a year before, Justice Roberts had been the fifth vote needed to keep the Lochner era alive. But shockingly, and in dramatic fashion, he switched his vote. He joined the Chief Justice and the Three Musketeers. He decided to uphold the state of Wisconsin's minimum wage law. But what about the liberty to contract? Well, for the first time since the turn of the 20th century, the Supreme Court rejected the liberty to contract doctrine and did so by a narrow vote of 5-4. to four. And so that's why West Coast Hotel versus Parish is often considered the case that ended the Lochner era. Giddy about his side finally winning, Chief Justice Hughes wrote the opinion for the court. Here's how he saw this whole freedom to contract idea. What is this freedom? The con- 
not speak of freedom of contract. It speaks of liberty and prohibits the deprivation of liberty without due process of law. In prohibiting that deprivation, the Constitution does not recognize an absolute and uncontrollable liberty. So the West Coast Hotel decision ended the interpretation of the Due Process Clause as protecting economic rights, and thereby opened the door for government to start regulating business activity. No longer would a law be struck down because it violated someone's liberty to contract. And that's why we can have minimum wage now. That's why state and federal governments can regulate businesses. The Supreme Court still occasionally strikes down economic laws because of things like the Commerce Clause, but they no longer recognize a liberty to contract in the 14th Amendment. Now, whether Justice Roberts switched as a reaction to FDR's court packing plan, or whether he simply evolved on his judicial philosophy, we'll never know for sure. But it did severely weaken the plan's urgency. People started thinking, come on, FDR, let's end this. The Supreme Court acquiesced, you can regulate businesses now, they're not going to stand in your way anymore, don't go through with this plan. And on top of that, just after this famous switch, Justice Van Devanter, one of the four horsemen, retired. He'd been on the court for nearly 30 years and stuck it out mostly to stop FDR from passing his reforms. But after the Roberts switch, he saw that the current towards change was too strong. And that meant that FDR was free to fill his seat, which pretty much made the whole court packing plan moot. FDR finally had a chance to nominate his first justice. He didn't need to add six. Ironically, though, the whole court would change over the next decade anyway, and FDR ultimately promoted seven justices to the Supreme Court before he died in his fourth term. And because Justice Roberts' switch preserved nine justices, which we still have to this day, it is referred to in history as the switch in time that saved nine. To replace Van Devanter, FDR nominated Justice Hugo Black. Shortly after he joined the court, Black dealt the final blow to the Lochner era. Lochner was officially reversed, which meant that the 14th Amendment would never again be used to strike down a state law for infringing on a liberty to contract. The Lochner era was over. The liberty to contract doctrine was over. And it seemed like the days when the due process clause could be used to stop the government from interfering with fundamental rights were also over. But, as it turns out, the idea of substantive due process did not die that day. It just lay dormant for 30 years. The horsemen had failed to keep the Lochner era alive, but their judicial philosophy had established that the 14th Amendment could be used to strike down state laws that infringe on civil liberties. Maybe the freedom to contract shouldn't be one of those liberties, but there could be others. And it would be the liberal progressives 
who would use that similar philosophy to protect fundamental rights for a whole new generation and bring substantive due process back to life. We'll talk more about the due process clause and its renaissance during the 1960s in episode four. May It Please the Court is produced by Untwist the Facts. Visit our website at www.untwistthefacts.com or follow us on social media at Untwist the Facts. I'm Alex Akavon, and thanks so much for listening.